0: It's, uh it's really, listen, it's, uh, it's, it's a terrific, terrific honor uh, to, to be here. I got I to be honest. There's so many, it's, it's such a great thing to come to a place like this and speak with friends like Greg Kokel and uh, Frank Turek and also speak with people uh, that are, uh, that, that also have, whose books that I've read and I, I probably sh- should just apologize right now that I'm sure I'm going to plagiarize one of the other speakers at least once during my next Because I've learned an awful lot uh, from, from them. But when I'm, the angle that I'm going to hit here is, uh, is a little bit different. What we've been talking about so far is really this idea of playing uh, defense. In other words, challenges come at the Christian faith. Can Christianity handle those challenges? This reason comes why Christianity can't be true. Here's the answer. But I think if we're really going to respond to our critics as Christians, we need to do more than just play defense. There's some offense to be played as well. And I'm starting here with an assumption that Christians have a call to cultural responsibility. That if Christianity is true, let me me just be clear on this. When we say Christianity is true, what we're saying is Christianity is actually the thing that describes the contours of reality. It's not true because people believe it. It's true whether people believe it or not. And if that's the case, if it actually describes the way the world works, then the application of that worldview to things like, like institutions and, and, and ideas and, and, and the human predicament, it's actually going to work out well. And that's the sort of call that I want to issue. Now, listen, I'll be the first to grant here that, that there, there's some confusion between Christianity and culture. Christians do a lousy lousy job often understanding culture, and the larger culture often does a lousy job understanding Christians. This happened to me. uh, I I realized this in an incident that happened to me uh, several years ago. We moved out to Colorado Springs, which is where we live now, my wife and three daughters and I, and and we live out there. And there's a, a very large church in Colorado Springs called New Life Church. You may have heard of the church. It's famous for some bad reasons and some good reasons, but it's an enormous church for a town the size of Colorado Springs. And there was a a big uh, blow up there because of the failing of a senior pastor there years ago. The next pastor came in and said that his goal was to get that church out of the spotlight and, and, and actually work on healing. He did a great job, but he was only able to keep it out of the spotlight for a few months. I had just moved to Colorado Springs. It was a Sunday morning. I was in my van driving around town, and I heard a news report come on the radio. There's been a shooting at New Life Church. There was a grumpy 20-something... Uh, who had been kicked out of a local missions program. He had gone up to that missions program in Arvada, Colorado, and targeted two individuals, shot them dead as they answered the door in the middle of the night. He then drove to this very large church that was associated with this mission program, and as the 11 o'clock service was letting out, he walked in essentially loaded with hundreds of rounds of ammunition, several guns, and his goal was to kill as many people as possible. There was a security guard there that morning who said she heard from the Lord that she was going to see some action, And she took him down after he shot two people in the parking lot, two people in the front door of the church. She shot him dead right there in the front door of the church. It was a horrific, horrible event. I was driving around that morning, and across the news, a female news reporter came on and said, there's been a shooting at New Life Church. So I turned up the volume to listen and hear what had happened. And the conversation that went on was something like this. She said, there's someone who saw the first couple get shot. Now, apparently there was a guy in the parking lot who saw the first two people get shot. He got scared, ran down the hill, flagged a car, jumped into the car, drove off. Now, whether he called the police first or called the radio station first, I don't know. All I know is I was listening to this guy being interviewed there on the radio station as the event, essentially, or just after the event was happening. And the conversation between the news reporter and this guy went something like this. She asked him, was mass still going on when the shooting took place? Now you need to understand that New Life Church is a large uh, mega church of a charismatic sort of leaning. I mean, it's a loud rocking service every Sunday morning. And she asked him, was mass still going on when the shooting took place? And he said, huh? And she said, was mass still going on when the shooting took place? And he said, huh? And she said, was mass still going on when the shooting took place? And he said, huh? And she said, was mass still going on when the shooting took place? And he said, huh? I promise you. I promise you that happened no less than eight or nine times. Now, 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 now put this together. This woman is a news reporter in Colorado Springs. Have you heard of Colorado Springs? <laughs> There are 300 501c3 nonprofit religious organizations in the town. Everything from Compassion International and Focus on the Family to the Christian Cowboy Association and everything in between. I mean, people call it the Mecca of evangelicalism. Like, if you're going to be a real evangelical, you have to take a pilgrimage to Colorado Springs (laughs) and go down the Wits' End slide at least once at Focus on the Family, (laughs) and then you're in. This woman... This woman is a reporter in this town, and she doesn't know enough about evangelicals to know that evangelicals don't celebrate Mass. That's what Catholics do. This guy doesn't know enough about his own faith to even know what Mass is. And the conversation goes back and forth. And a lot of times when it comes to Christians looking at the larger world or vice versa, we're just shooting past each other. So what should Christians do with culture? Let me give you a couple definitive statements. The first thing is this. Escape is not an option. Escape, by the way, is not an option for humans. We're not even talking about Christians yet. To be human is to be cultural. Humans do and make culture. It's just what we do. You cannot escape from culture. It's not something... It's, the, it's the, the water that we swim in. It's the world that we live in. It's just part of the human experience. As much as, even as Christians, as we might want to try to avoid the culture, I would say two things. Number one is, we can't. And number two is, we shouldn't. The can't question is more obvious to me than ever before. This is uh, my family. I'm the dad of three little girls. Go ahead. Thank you. And, yeah, I mean... It's fun to be the dad of three little girls. It's a, it's a great job. Um, I, I have a harder job than people who have boys. People who have boys have to worry about boys. People who have girls have to worry about lots and lots of boys. And um, I, used to, I used to be one of these boys. So th- th- this is my girls. Now, look, they're, they're seven, five, and three, and we have a good time. But you know what? I can't keep the culture out. Again, we live in Colorado Springs. It's known as kind of a Christian town. My neighborhood in, In my very neighborhood in Colorado Springs, my next door neighbor was a Muslim, the next door was a Jew, the other one was a lapsed Catholic. The, little, the Jewish family next door, they had a, a six-year-old little boy who at least had a crush on two of my daughters anyway, and he would come knock on our door every single day until they moved. He just loved to play with my daughters. Well, around Christmas time, he came over and knocked on the door. Abigail, my oldest, invited him in, and she said, it's Christmas, and I want to tell you about Jesus. She was really excited about this. And he said, no, we're Jewish. We don't believe in Jesus. And he took off out the door. And I said, wow, we just had a collision of religions between a six-year-old and a seven-year-old right there on my front step. But it's also the larger culture of just reality. I mean, I I had never taken my daughter on Facebook. I had never shown her Facebook. She came down during nap time a couple months ago, and and she said, Daddy, can I play games on your phone? I said, Sure. I got a couple games on there, like Princess Games and Dora Games and so on. I mean, for them, I promise. And (laughs) she she took the phone upstairs. Thirty minutes later, she came down, and she had updated my Facebook profile twice. The first post said, Mommy, I love you, Abigail. The second post said, Daddy, you have fat feet. I had never shown them Facebook. I mean, this is the reality is to be human is to be cultural. Escape is not an option. Now listen, there are escapist worldviews. There are religions, there are worldviews that teach you that the goal of life is to try to escape. Buddhism is one of those. The goal of life is to try to escape in your mind to a state of a mental state of contentment. Hinduism is, a, is an escapist worldview where the goal is actually through a series of births and rebirths to escape the physical reality right christianity is not an escapist worldview christianity is based on an idea that the god who created the world and every human in it became one of his creation in order to redeem it the trajectory is not us getting out of here the trajectory of the christian worldview is actually being all here so escape is not an option but let me also add this for Christ's followers accommodation is not an option And far too often when it comes to culture, we tend to just embrace things in culture because they're normal. Things just become normal in a culture, maybe a view on sexuality, maybe a view even on things like politics or economics or institutions. And and, and we think, oh, well, we can just do that and keep Jesus on the side. But the fact of the matter is Christianity teaches that this God who became flesh is not only the Savior of the world. According to Matthew, he is the Lord and the King of the world. This is his. And so when we just mindlessly embrace things uh, in, 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 our, you know, in, in our worldview as, as Christians, then we're going to be compromising the truth. And this happened to me growing up. I grew up in, a, in an environment where the idea of Christianity was let's escape, let's stay out. And our, my youth pastor growing up, and he's still one of my heroes, great guy, uh, my, my youth pastor growing up was very concerned about the evils of rock and roll music when I was growing up, and so he decided to scare us away from it. Now, it was the late 80s, so maybe he had some good reasons. But anyway, he, so he showed us this, this teaching video that basically made the argument that all uh, rock musicians were devil worshipers and you know this because if you play their records backwards some of you are like records I've heard of this but if, if you play those records backwards and they tell you things like I just remember if you played Queens another one bites the dust backwards it says start to smoke marijuana which I'm not sure had anything to do with devil worship and plus, that's not what it said. It said "not want You know, that's what it said actually. <laughs> but clearly, that was. The, I mean, I remember watching this and thinking to myself, you know, I can't understand what Ozzy Osbourne says forward. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what the message is here. But, but, but here's what's interesting: is I remember sitting there as a, as a young, you know, in, in a Christian home at a Christian school, and, and so on. And I remember looking at this video where they were trying to keep me away, and I thinking to myself, ACDC is awesome. And I went out and bought their tape, you know? And, and In other words, there was just this whole accommodation thing. And we see that with so many statistics, the accommodation. In fact, I was just last night at an event with uh, Josh McDowell, who's speaking a lot on pornography. This is an interesting example, right? There, there's, there are differences uh, statistically in behaviors in the church and out of the church. One area where there's no difference is porn use. Accommodation is not an option for Christ followers. And the reason that neither escape nor accommodation is an option is because of what Christianity actually describes. What Christianity gives to us is not merely a way of being religious in the world, but what Christianity describes is a way of being human in God's world. What Christianity claims is that this is the world we live in. The only world that anyone has ever lived in is the one that was created by God. It's the one in which that God became flesh, the one in which that God who became flesh died and rose again, and and, and it's the one in which He will make all things new. Thus, because the Christian world is the real world, the Christian has a call to engage the real world. In other words, we got to do more than just play defense. The question is, what is our Christian responsibility to live and to love and to build and to to relate and to fight and to surrender and to do everything that humans do in a way that reflects the real world that we actually live in, the one that's created and redeemed by God. And that's a tough thing to do. But G.K. Chesterton, and I love Chesterton. If you've never read him, you should read him for a couple of reasons. Number one is he's brilliant. Number two, he's always grumpy, so it makes him a really fun sort of read. But, but Chesterton talked about this. He said, if Christianity should happen to be true... That is to say, if it's God is the real God of the universe, get this, then defending it may mean talking about anything and everything. A lot of times we wait till the challenges come to us. I think one of the best ways to respond to Christianity's critics is that we start applying the explanatory power of the truth of the Christian story to every area of life. What, what, what Chesterton is saying here is that you can actually defend the truth of Christianity By applying it and talking about anything and everything. He says things can be irrelevant to the proposition that Christianity is false. But nothing can be irrelevant to the proposition that Christianity is true. Because Christianity encompasses the whole story of the world. Let me give you a model of this that makes sense to me. God has given us the text. He's given us the scripture. And this scripture, this text drives our agenda. It tells us what to think. It tells us how to live. It tells us what to believe. It tells us the moral contours of reality as well as other contours of reality. And you know what? But the hard part is is that this text, this agenda that we're supposed to be living out has to be lived out in a context of our times that's different than the context of the story itself, right? Now, I don't know you guys, so I don't know what you thought when you woke up and looked out the window this morning. But I don't think anyone looked outside and said, oh no, the Philistines are outside. What am I going to do? (laughs) Right? Now, if the Philistines were outside, good news, We've got like 35 chapters that tell you what to do in case of Philistines. But that's not what you saw. You looked outside and you said, oh no, radical Islam is outside. Oh no, secularism is outside. Oh no, we have these disagreements about sexual behavior outside. Oh no, Lady Gaga's outside, you know? What am I going to do? Right? And so what happens is, is that our context gives us questions that has to drive us back into the text. And so we need to be very good, not only at reading God's Word, but reading God's world and figuring out where the two connect. I heard an alarming statistic last night, I believe it comes out of LifeWay studies, that about 86% of youth group kids cannot explain how the Bible has any relevance to their lives. That's shocking if we actually take the Scriptures at face value. Now, there's lots of questions I think that the Scriptures and our context will beg of us, but I want to give us four. I want to give us a guidance around four questions so we can live with kind of a cultural conscience in our world. Here's the first question. What's going on really A lot of times as Christians, we're guilty of asking the question, what's going on, and stopping there. We ask, what's going on, and then we panic. What's going on? Democrats. Ah! What's going on? Republicans. Ah! What's going on? Harry Potter. Ah! Right? And so something happens in the world and we're just reactionary and reactive and it scares us, right? And I get that because there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in our world. You know, we live in a world where Ahmadinejad counts as a world leader, Oprah counts as a spiritual leader, Dawkins counts as a philosopher, and Snooki counts as someone whose name we actually know. (laughs) This says a lot about the world that we live in, right? And so it's very easy to react and to panic, right? But what we need to do is ask that question, what's going on really? What's going on? Maybe Harry Potter. But what's going on is Harry Potter plus Lord of the Rings plus Oprah plus Joel Olstein plus the growth of even... In other words, what's going on is we have a culture that seems very intrigued by spiritual things. And this is very different than 50, 75 years ago, where we actually believed that science or technology was going to solve all of our problems. We're not there anymore. So we need to go deeper and say, not what's going on, but what's going on really. Let me give you a couple things that I think is going on really. Number one, the drowning of truth and perpetual noise. We live in what sociologists and historians and so on call the age of information. Why do they call it the age of information? Because the daily person today encounters more information every single day than someone who lived in the 400s would have seen during their entire lifetime. It's an amazing, I mean, you know, you have at your fingertips, if you have an iPad right now or a phone connected to the internet, you have at your fingertips more information than all the previous centuries of the world combined. This is the connectivity, this is the access that you have It's not that the truth is not out there. What it is is that the truth, and this is the idea that Thomas Friedman gave us, the world's flat. The truth is being drowned in a sea of noise, right? And this is a huge development because it's very hard to focus on the truth. T.S. Eliot described this decades ago in a great little poem called Choruses from the Rock. He said, the endless cycle of idea and action, endless invention, endless experiment— Brings knowledge of motion, but not of stillness. Knowledge of speech, but not of silence. Knowledge of words and ignorance of the word. All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our ignorance brings us nearer to death, but nearness to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Isn't it interesting? I mean, you could see this. If you stop the average person on the street and you ask them something really important, like tell me really, you know, name, for example, you know, your state senators, or name, for example, the three Supreme Court justices, or name these great people in history, and they can't, but if you said name the three judges on American Idol last season, they can. This is a real state of affairs, isn't it? This is what's known as being perpetually distracted from things that actually matter. Here's another one the captivity of our imagination. You know, we live off of belief, but most of the time our beliefs are not just held in our brain, they're held in our imagination. They're held by those things, those ideas, those individuals who capture us. And we have lost this in a culture. This is something that I struggle with as a dad. You know what? I I realize that as a dad of three little girls, I'm raising daughters. I'm raising daughters who will be compared to other women who don't actually exist. They have been airbrushed. I was going to say airbrushed to death, but they've really been airbrushed to life, haven't they? Our imagination has been captive. I could go on and on about this, but I want to take you to someone who I think got it, and that was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn came over and gave an unbelievable uh, graduation speech at Harvard University, and he just said this. He got booed out of it. I think it was one of the, the darkest moments in higher academic history, which is saying quite a lot. Um, Here's what Solzhenitsyn said. He said, A decline in courage, this is a long quote, but hang with me. A decline in courage may be the most striking feature which an outside observer notices in the West in our days. The Western world has lost its civil courage, both as a whole and separately in each country, each government, each political party, and of course the United Nations. Of course there are many courageous individuals, but they have no determining influence on public life. By the way, you know the story of Solzhenitsyn, right? He had survived the gulags of the Soviet Union, had been released and uh, came over to speak against the West. He said, destructive, this is huge, destructive and irresponsible freedom has been granted boundless space. Society appears to have little defense against the abyss of human decadence, such as, for example, misuse of liberty for moral violence against young people, such as motion pictures full of pornography, crime, and horror. Hastiness and superficiality are the psychic disease of the 20th century. The Western system in its present state of spiritual exhaustion does not look attractive. The human soul longs for things higher, warmer, and purer than those offered by today's mass living habits, introduced by the revolting invasion of publicity, by TV stupor, and by intolerable music. And that was before Jersey Shore. (laughs) There are meaningful warnings which history gives. Get this, this is huge. A threatened or perishing society. For instance, the decadence of art or a lack of great statesmen. There are open and evident warnings too. The center of your democracy and of your culture is left without electric power for a few hours only. And all of a sudden, crowds of American citizens start looting and creating havoc. The smooth surface film must be very thin then. The social system quite unstable and unhealthy. But the fight for our planet, he continues, physical and spiritual, a fight of cosmic proportions is not a vague matter of the future. It has already started. The forces of evil have begun their offensive. You can feel their pressure. And yet your screens and publications are full of prescribed smiles and raised glasses. What is the joy about? Our imaginations have been taken captive. Here's the third. I think you see, as you look at our culture, what's going on really, there's a pervasive sense that something is wrong. One of the last interviews that Chuck Colson and I did before he passed away was with Mindy Belts of World Magazine, and Mindy brought up something that was very clear, that was very, I'm sorry, not very clear, very interesting to me. She said that for the first time in world history that we have record of, 50% of the world's population is under 25. There's a deep sense across the culture that something is wrong. There's a deep sense. You can see it in the Occupy Wall Street movie, a uh, movement. You can see it in, in, in the 2016 movie and all the political movements in between. You can see it in the Arab Spring. You can see it uh, in, in, in so many of the churches saying things like what I'm saying something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. It's very interesting when that happens across a culture where there's a universal agreement, hey, something needs to be fixed here. Something's broken. Something needs to happen. It reminds me of, of, of a painting that we're all familiar with, uh, the, the Scream painting by Edvard Monk. And it's, you know, I don't know if you know the story of it, but Monk in 1893 painted this and it's become, you know, kind of this symbolic picture of human uh, frustration. He said, I was tired and ill. I stood out looking across the fjord. The sun was setting, the clouds were colored red. Now stop right there. How many of you have seen a sunset that was brilliant with red color? And how many of you went, wow. That's not what he did. That's what strikes you, isn't it? He sees this beautiful sunset and he says, the clouds were colored red like blood. I felt as though a scream went through nature. I thought I heard a scream. I painted this picture, painted the clouds like real blood. The colors were screaming. And it's interesting to me that I think we have a culture right now that very often screams out, something is wrong, something is wrong, something is wrong, something is wrong. wrong." Fourth, the deconstruction of the human person. We live in the wake of the 20th century. The irony of the 20th century is that it was was the century of of, of movements and political ideologies and different things that said, we're going to fix the world, we're going to fix the world, we're going to fix the world, we're going to fix the world. Which of those theories fixed the world in the 20th century? None of them. What we end up having now is a society that in so many ways dehumanizes for example, the fashion industry. Does the fashion industry make girls more human or less human? Does it celebrate their distinctiveness and their value or does it hold them to standards they can't possibly meet? We can look at this when it comes to scourges like abortion and our struggle with biotechnology and euthanasia and all the things in between those two things. The deconstruction of the human person. And then finally, and I think this is key, the loss ...of a controlling common narrative. It used to be across Western society... ...we agreed on things like freedom... We agreed on things like liberty. We agreed on things like morality. We agreed on things like higher ideals. Now we're not only disagreeing about how to help the poor, we're disagreeing on whether there should be such a thing as poor or how we, whether we actually can help the poor. We're not just disagreeing on things like uh, what's the best way to reach virtue. We're disagreeing on whether there is such a thing as virtue or not. Now you say, John, why are you bringing this negative picture of the world? Here it is. Because if we look past that thin veneer that Solzhenitsyn talked about, we live in a culture in which things are broken. You know what that means? You know what that means, church? It means, it means that this is a culture ripe for the gospel. It's ripe for the hope that comes in the gospel. The thing that won't fix everything but the thing that can bring real hope to souls and to individuals and is part of the larger story in which Jesus Christ will one day fix everything and make all things new. So we've got to ask that question, what's going on really? It reveals the problem. The second thing we need to ask is, why is it going on really? What's behind this stuff? We can't just say, oh, what's going on? It's because they're sinners or they're commies or something like that, right? we need to ask the question, why is it really going on? What's really behind this? Because when everyone tries to live and to build culture and to do what they do in the world, they're essentially just trying to do what we all do, which is make sense of life. They're trying to answer, because this is what humans do, the fundamental questions of life, like, does life have meaning? And how should I live? And where did I come from? And what's right and wrong? These are questions that are at the root of the human experience in the world. It's what separates us from the animals. This is one of the most interesting things about Frank's talk. You know, if we're just animals, right? Bambi doesn't, well, Bambi did, but that was a Disney movie. Most deer do not stop and say, oh, man, he got shot. That's really a shame. Right? Christians are the one that say something's wrong with the world. How many of you guys have pets at home? Your pets don't ask these questions. All your pets care about is where they're going to find their next meal, where they're going to find their next nap, and where they're going to find their next mate. And I know that sounds like college freshmen, too, but Humans are trying to make sense of the world. And so when we see these expressions, whether we agree with them or disagree with them, what we're actually seeing are people trying to put the pieces together. The questions about origin and meaning and morality and destiny, how we wrestle with these questions, gives us our sense of who we are and how we fit in the world and what we think we should do in the world. It's the basis of answering these huge cultural questions. That's what we mean by worldview, because underneath cultures, culture is the flesh of worldview. As Chuck Olson would say, culture is an expression of the cult, what we worship, what we value, what we love. Now, there's a lot of different definitions of worldview. I really like this definition of worldview uh, because, uh, well, it's the one from my book. and. <laughs> A worldview then is this framework of basic beliefs that we have about the world, whether we know it or not, that shapes our view of the world and our view for the world. That's what a worldview is. And so all the culture, if we want to know why things are going the way they do, we've got to dig and get to the worldview. Because from our worldview come our values, from our values come our actions. And this is... This is huge for Christians to understand. That when we look at someone and say, oh, they're just doing that because they're a sinner, sinner. No, they're doing that because they're someone who was made in the image of God and they have forgotten who God is. And we need to get at the root We need to get at the root of who they are and how they live in the world and understand worldview. Worldviews have an enormous influence, whether we're talking about, you know, for example, the worldview of a a thinker in the 20th century like Michel uh, Michel Foucault. Foucault was a, a guy who basically taught us that cultures determine everything, that there's no such thing as universal right and wrong, that it shifts from culture and culture. Things don't have individual ideas or essence or identity. And you say, I've never heard of that guy. Yeah, you and most of the population. But that guy has actually shaped how we understand human sexuality and therefore human identity. His ideas have an awful big impact in the world. Schaefer was one of the ones who brought our attention to this. He said that ideas start in the, in the minds of thinkers like Foucault, and then they trickle into the institutions of the academy, and then they produce culture, and then they produce pop culture, and then they reshape the imagination of the popular people. That's why it's so important to understand ideas. The church has done a pretty lousy job understanding ideas. That's why a a conference like this is so unusual and it's so important. That we need to not only love God with our heart and with our soul, we need to love Him with our what? Our mind. Because we've never heard about Foucault. But we have been influenced. And Lewis once said this, that the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued, but the ones that are assumed. You want to understand why the world is the way the world is? Find the ideas that are shaping the world you live in. Find the ideas that are shaping culture. Find the ideas. They're not always verbalized. Find the definitions. In fact, that's a key point. The battle of ideas is most often the battle over the definitions of words. How we define things like love, truth, justice. How we define things like human value. How we define things like beginning of life, end of life. How we define things like beauty and honor. How we define things like virtue and duty. These ideas really, really matter. Here's the third question. What's it like to live here? This is so important because here's the thing. You've heard this phrase, right? Ideas have what? Some of you heard this? Ideas have, I'll give it to you, ready? Ideas have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. Big ideas have big consequences. Stupid ideas have, you get the point, right? Ideas have consequences, right? But here's what's important. Ideas have consequences for people. Real people. Here's what we need to understand about culture. This is why it claims the Christian's attention. Because cultures either humanize or dehumanize. Cultures either bring life or cultures bring death. Cultural expressions, how we do it in this culture or that culture or whatever, they actually show the value of human beings or they actually steal the value of human beings. So we need to ask that question what's it like to live here? How many of you guys have seen the movie Amazing Grace? There's a great scene in that movie when William Wilberforce is being drafted into the abolitionist cause and the the, Clapham, uh, the people who become the Clapham sect with Wilberforce, they come and they actually throw the chains on the table and the one guy puts it around his neck and puts it around his elbows and the, and, and the former slave shows his scar. You know what they were forcing him to do? They were forcing him to face the question, what is this doing to real human beings? The parallels in our culture are so huge. One of the great oxymorons of the last 40 years, sexual freedom. Has sexual freedom made us free? No, sexual freedom has made us slaves. You say, John, why are you saying this? What I'm saying is is that all of these things provide opportunities. Why do we have such a bad idea about sexuality? Why? Because we need Christians to rise up and to proclaim the truth, not just about Jesus Christ, but the truth about all the implications of the lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of culture. Fourth question. Which of the gospel reads apply here? And that's a weird way of saying it. Here's what I mean. If you go to to, to Paul's letters. And, and when Paul talks about salvation, he uses an awful lot of words that start with the letters R-E, right? Can you think of some of these? Redemption, what else? Reconciliation, that's my favorite. What else? Rejoice, repentance, renewal, right? Regeneration. Re-words always imply what? Again. Again, again. And you see, here's what's brilliant the Christian story of the world, which is the story of the whole world, is the story that starts with creation. Right? The God who spoke life out of nothing. And in the middle of that, something went wrong. The world has been infected. There is evil. There is suffering. There is pain. But the real story of the world is that in that evil and suffering and pain, God came and planted the seeds of new life. The only world that you've ever lived in is the one that God created. The only world you've ever lived in is the one that has been broken, which is why the next time someone steps up and says, Guys, I can fix the world, bad idea. Already. But the only world you've ever lived in is the one in which Christ died and rose again. Now stop looking at that, okay. Say, <laughs> John, what's your point? Christians, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, have been reconciled so that they can become agents of what? Reconciliation. The reconciled ones become reconcilers. One of the biggest mistakes the church has made in the 20th century is that they've punted the mission of the gospel to the pastors and to the missionaries and to the Sunday school teachers. Uh, Paul says that the work, excuse me, that the job of the pastors and the teachers and the missionaries is to equip the saints for the work of the what? ministry. We all carry with us the hope of the gospel. Paul says, all excuse me, Peter says, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the what? hope that you have. Think about this. In a world that lacks truth, in a world that lacks beauty, in a world that doesn't know what a human being is, we have what the scriptures call hope, and we need that word hope because if there's one thing that our culture misses, it's hope. How do we miss hope? We miss hope one way by just being optimistic. Oh the world's not that bad. This is kind of the Oprah mindset. Oh, you can actually pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You just think good thoughts about the world and good things will actually happen to you, like in that you know book, "The Secret," or something like that. And then we can also do it the way Edward Monks did it, and miss hope by being just despairing. The world stinks, it sucks. There's nothing we can do about it. It's broken. But you know what? The Christian story lands us and plants our feet in the middle of hope by saying there is a truth that is irrefutable. And that truth is the truth of all people who have ever lived, Christ has risen. That will never be changed. No matter what happens in the history of the world, Christ has risen. Islam takes over the West, Christ has risen. We lose the definition of marriage in society, Christ has risen. Katy Perry makes another album, Christ has risen. Christ has risen. And the brilliance of this is huge. Listen, this is not a conference for you to come listen and hear and say, oh, I'm glad somebody answered that question, no, no, no. This is a conference for you to come be equipped and take that hope into your sphere of influence. I was speaking to a group, uh, uh, excuse me, I was speaking to a group of 20-somethings a couple years ago and I started talking about some of this and this girl, this 20-something girl grabbed her friend clearly against her will, dragged her up to me and she said, thank you, and I was like, you're welcome why? And she said, because you said that we need Christian fashion designers. I said, I did? She said, yeah. I said, well, I think we do. But why do you think we need Christian fashion designers? She said, well, my friends of fashion designer have been telling her that. I said, well, why do you think we need Christian fashion designers? She said, because fashion designers teach culture what beautiful is. Why are Christians on the sidelines? Why are Christians allowing untruth, falsity, counterfeit ideas to reframe the definitions by which we live and move in our culture? Listen, it's interesting. Foreign Missions is realizing this. Foreign Missions is being flipped on its head because we're realizing that the future of Foreign Missions is not in professional missionaries. It's in professionals doing international work. I can't speak for Chuck Colson. He was a hero of mine and a friend of mine and a mentor of mine. But I'll tell you one thing I know that Chuck believed is that the future of the church's engagement and success in engaging culture wasn't with pastors, and it certainly wasn't just with politicians. It was with professionals. Individuals who had been reconciled to Christ, taking the truth of that reconciliation to every corner of the world. I love this quote by C.H. Spurgeon. I do think, by the way, that the gospel needs to be defended in different ways. But here's what he said. He was asked, what's the best way to defend the gospel? He said, the gospel is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? Wouldn't it be great to go do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what the Colson Center is about. I want to give you a couple of resources for this and engaging culture in your space. I hope you get Breakpoint. You remember Breakpoint? How many of you guys ever heard Breakpoint? That was voiced by Chuck Colson. It has not gone away as Chuck has passed. We, of course, have the voice of Eric Metaxas, and I also voice some radio programs. That's our website. I mentioned this book here, Making Sense of Your World. You can find it out there. Um, and if you don't have the Breakpoint app, you can actually, on your iPhone or your Android, you can actually download that app and it'll give you our radio programs. We have a four-minute radio program called Breakpoint Every Day. I have a one-minute program called The Point, Interviews and that sort of thing on there as well. And then in terms of this whole culture stuff, this was just really kind of a 30,000-foot view. This is the call to cultural engagement. But we need to understand worldviews. We need to understand specific cultural issues like postmodernism and biotechnology. We need to understand issues like marriage and masculinity and entertainment we also need to be able to answer those tough questions. And so these are three uh, sets of resources that I have. Each of these CDs has five different talks on it on MP3, so you can take it and share it around, put it on your iPod or whatever. And uh, each of each, each CDs, there's uh, five talks on worldview, five talks on culture, and five talks uh, on tough questions. You can find those out in, uh, in, in the bookstore as well. Uh, but, I, but listen, I, I, I hope this was helpful and I hope it encouraged us. Christianity is not just about the intellectual life. I wanna, it, it is about the intellectual life, but it's about the cultural life as well. It's about applying those ideas. I want to end with a quote, and it would only be fitting. The last time I was here at this church was with Chuck Colson, and there was a quote that he loved to throw around. He quoted it almost every time I ever heard him speak. It was from the great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, where he said, there's not a single square inch in all of creation where Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, does not put his foot and say, mine. You know what that means? If we have met Jesus Christ, there's not a single square inch in all of creation where we do not put our foot and say, his. It's his. God bless you. Thank you very much.